you know, there is this myth that the introvert, because they're quieter, that means they're a better listener. When you're, when someone's quiet doesn't necessarily mean they're listening. They may mm. not be talking, but that doesn't mean they're listening. This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of RJ Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. We spend a lot of time talking and listening, but are we really listening and are we being heard? Do you fail to register the name of a person that you were just introduced to? Do you find that someone is texting or looking at their phone while you're having a conversation with them? And why, with all the connecting that we're doing, are more people lonely and unheard? These questions and the price we pay for not listening are smartly explored in Kate Murphy's new book, You're Not Listening, What You're Missing and Why It Matters. Kate spent almost two years delving into academic research, the biomechanical and neurobiological processes, as well as the psychological and emotional effects of not listening. She has synthesized all of this for us in a way that is bound to make you reassess how you move through your day, how you engage in relationships, and how by learning to listen well, your experience and your existence will be enriched. Kate, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so this, these, these topics, I'm sure, are of enormous interest um, to our listeners because they shape how we live. And you mention a 2018 survey of 20,000 Americans where almost half of them said that they did not have a meaningful in-person social interaction on a daily basis, and about the same number said that they felt lonely or left out. So the question for us today is, is this new? And if it is new, how'd we get here? Well, that's what I wanted to explore in the book. And it is new in the sense that um, it's really, we've gotten to a point um, sociologically, culturally, politically, where we aren't listening. We've gotten so distracted by our devices, um, our own need to lead the conversation, this imperative to sell yourself, as well as just our noisy modern environments that we're actually conditioned not to listen. And it, it's leaving a lot of us feeling you know, very hollow. I was just actually um, talking to students at the University of Mississippi. And it's funny how you start talking to people about it. Listening is something that you take for granted. It's something you do or you don't do every day. But once you start talking to people about it, they think, yeah. You know, they think of those moments when they're at a restaurant and they can't hear anybody because it's mm. just so loud. Or there's that phone that someone takes out that, you know, implicitly signals that, you know, you're not sufficiently engaging, right. you know. <laughs> and in fact, I had I had heard that even a phone turned down. In other words, you're not seeing the screen; it's turned over. It equally makes that statement. 
Yeah, there were studies, actually, this was done in the UK, where they showed just the mere presence of the phone on the table turned off, and everyone at the table knew it was off. But it still, nonetheless, made people um, talk about things that were less meaningful. It kept the conversation more superficial. So what happens is it's this vicious cycle of the phone being on the table, which makes people engage in you know, less interesting conversation, which makes you then want to pick up your phone. And so it just goes on and on. We're going to come to the definition of uh, the art of listening, but let's start. This might be an exaggerated example, but I want to spend a little bit of time talking about what a bad listener is, but share with us a story you have in the book by, about Dick Bass as as an extreme example of a bad listener. Well, Dick Bass was the son of an oil baron in Texas, and he um, was uh, very into mountain climbing. And he went to all of the highest peaks and did these mountain climbing expeditions, and he liked to tell everyone within earshot about these um, mountain climbing expeditions. And he was on a cross-country flight, sat next to this gentleman and did what he did. And that was launch into talking about his mountain climbing. And uh, they got towards the knee, the end of their um, flight. And he realized he hadn't introduced himself to the fellow that he'd been regaling with all of his um, feats of daring do and s- introduced himself and said, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't introduce myself further. And the guy said, oh, that's all right. I'm Neil Armstrong. Nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Besides being a great story, um, how typical is that sort of engagement between two people? I think it's very typical. I mean, there's some, you know, one of the things I bring up in the book is, you know, your goal in a conversation is to find something out about the other person. And in my traveling around on the book tour, you know, so many people have come up to me and they realize, you know, it was, I always was so concerned about making a good impression and talking and, and putting myself out there that they realized at the end of the conversation, they had absolutely no clue about the other person, Mm. much less how the other person felt about what they were talking about. And you talk in the book about the science of, um, the, the, the science of how fast your brain can absorb, uh, information with how quickly you can think. So there's actually a scientific gap. Is that right? Yeah, I call it, um, I call it um, talking, um, talking like a tortoise and thinking like a hare. And what's happening is you can think a whole lot faster than another person can talk. And as a result, you start taking these mental side trips while the other person's talking <laughs> because you have this excess cognitive capacity. So you start thinking about, Ooh, do I have spinach in my teeth? Or, you know, what am I going to have for dinner later? Or you think about a fight that you had with your spouse earlier that day. And then you come back into the conversation and realize, oh, my God, I've missed half of what that person said. Yeah. And it, so, yeah. It, it, so share with us what a bad listener, what are the qualities of a bad listener? Well, you know, it's interesting because when I was doing the research of this book, that was one of the questions I asked. And I actually started out with what makes a good listener. Mm. And every, I mean, without exception, almost everyone that I interviewed, and this is in five continents, hundreds and hundreds of people, and I would get a blank stare, you know, just sort of this pause, deer in the headlights sort of look. They couldn't 
tell me what mm. it meant to be a good listener. Yet at the same time, they could tell me precisely and rattle off a lot of aspects of what it means to be a bad listener. Things like looking at your phone, things like interrupting, uh, responding in an illogical way or an insensitive way, uh, jumping in with um, shifting the conversation back to yourself. And you know what that told me, that people could so readily tell me about what the aspects of a bad listener, but couldn't tell me about the traits of a good listener, is just frankly, we're more, have more experience with bad listeners than with good listeners. And in fact, you talk about that the encyclopedia, the International Encyclopedia of Interpersonal Communication, which has 2,048 pages, only has one entry on listening. And the SAGE, S-A-G-E, Handbook of Interpersonal Communications, has none. So yeah. what are these books on communication even talking about if, if listening isn't part of it? They're all talking about the other side. They're talking about <laughs> They're talking. talking. I mean, if you think about if you think about just school these days, I mean, you know, just you, there are courses in debate and rhetoric and elocution. But when's the last time you heard of about a course in careful listening? You mm. can get a PhD in speech communication. You can join clubs like Toastmasters to perfect your public speaking. But there's nothing similar to help you be a better listener. And actually, listening is the more powerful position in communication. Kate, do you think people are born to be good listeners? You know, listening is a skill. And like any skill, it degrades if you don't do it enough. And so, you know, people become bad listeners, but they also become good listeners by virtue of doing it. You know, the really, I, I call the people in my book that I interview, you know, Olympic athletes of listeners, people like, you know, CIA agent, focus group moderator, air traffic controller, priest, you know, psychotherapist, hairstylist. And these are the people that put in their 10,000 hours. You know, they're the ones who have gotten virtuosic in their listening and gotten so good at it. Now, I will say, I think there are probably some people just like, you know, playing a sport or a musical instrument there's some people that just have more natural ability, and some may have to work harder, but everyone can benefit from making the effort. And, and what role does curiosity play in being a good listener? It's enormous. You know, I, th I think that's the basis of good listening, because when you're curious, you want to find out what's going on with the other person. What are they thinking? What are they feeling? You know, if you don't have a curiosity about the other person, then, you know, you have no motivation to listen. And in reading the book, I was reminded of the enormous benefit of listening. And I want to get to that on a psychological level. But you talk about MRIs that were conducted that talk about even, even neurologically the benefit of listening. Share that with us. Well, you know, I mean, we always talk about when you are, when you really get, when someone really gets you or when you're really in sync and it's, you know, that feeling of connection. And one of the attach, attachment experts that I interviewed, she talked about those moments of snatches of magic. And we've all felt that, you know, with a loved one or, you know, maybe a colleague or a best friend or a romantic partner. And that's a real romantic saying, snatches of magic. But like you say, when I went to the neuroscientists and asked, 
what's going on in the brain at that moment that feels so good to us. And actually what's happening is the neural patterns or brain waves of the speaker and the listener are actually in sync. Mm. They start to overlap. So, you know, not only do we have this wonderful poetic notion of, you know, that snatch of magic, but it's, you know, you are, it is happening in your brain. You can see it visually and measure it in the brain. You know, talking about being in sync, it's true. It's actually what's happening in the brains of the speaker and the listener. And, and, you know, if you think about it practically, you think about a relationship that you have with a, a partner or a spouse, a, a friend, that the moment that you feel both relief and pleasure is when you feel like that person is understanding your joy, your frustration, your sadness. So how does somebody get to that? If they want to try to develop the skill, what are the what are the ways that you've learned that are the skills or the advice or the information that they can begin to think about in order to become a better listener? Well, each chapter in the book goes into a different aspect of listening. And so, you know, each chapter helps with that. But, you know, if I were to give one piece of advice for people to just, you know, after listening to this interview, to be able to put into place immediately, it would be what we were talking about in terms of make it your mission when you're talking to someone to learn something about them. Mm. And also, you know, so when you leave the conversation, ask yourself, what did I just learn about that person? And also, also important is to ask yourself, how did that person feel about what we were talking about? And if you can answer those two questions after a conversation, you are well on your way to being a better listener. Of course, there's much more to it. And that's what I get into for the, in the book. But, you know, if you can do those two things, you're, you're off to a really good start. So say those two again, because I think those, those, those hints of reminding us when we're in a conversation are critical. When you leave the conversation, ask yourself, what did I learn about that person? And also, how did that person feel about what we were talking about? Mm. And how does somebody get away from, you know, the temptation is, as you said earlier, is to bring the conversation back to you, right? Right. And people... Uh, presumably are hardwired to do that. So doesn't that bring bring us back to the question of why are you in a conversation with a person? Like what what did you hope would happen in a conversation? Well, you know, I don't know if that we're hardwired to do that. I just think, you know, culturally, we've just been conditioned to do that, that, mm. you know, to shape the narrative, lead the conversation, you know, stay on message and, you know, make your mark. And so, you know, we feel like that's what we need to be doing. But, you know, if you, you don't learn when you're talking, <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't connect, you don't empathize, you don't do all of those things that bring that moment of, you know, where you were talking about where you really feel like you're understood and the other person feels like they're understood. 
And it's really very much this back and forth of you all listening to each other that makes for that connection or that bond during a conversation. And really, you know, that's all we really want in life Mm. is to understand and be understood. So when you're asking, you know, why are you in this conversation? That's what you're in the conversation for, you know, to be understood and to understand. And you can't do either of those without listening. One of the surprising tidbits that you had in the book um, was a piece about extroverts and introverts in particular. So I would think an introvert would be the person who is the better listener, that they're not spending the time talking, they're not trying to um, dominate a conversation. But in fact, share with us your observation about introverts as listeners. Well, it's not just my observation. I mean, they've actually done studies on this. But, you know, introverts are very busy within their own minds. And it's sort of back to that idea of of talking like a tortoise, thinking like a hare, is, you know, all that busyness in the introvert's mind is um, keeping them from listening. I mean, and that's not all introverts, but, you know, there is this myth that the introvert, because they're quieter, that means they're a better listener. When you're when someone's quiet doesn't necessarily mean they're listening. They may mm. not be talking, but that doesn't mean they're listening. And so they could be thinking about a million other things, and which introverts often are. And in fact, you know, I interview I interviewed you know quite a few people who were introverts and said you know that they're just sort of off in their own world when someone else is talking. <laughs> and so you know they're just you know when someone else is going on and on you know that it's like they've put them on mute. You know they're doing their own little movie inside their head, and so they're they're not taking anything in. So it it really is something to you know just because someone's quiet, you know they could just be waiting for your lips to stop moving. It's not it doesn't mean they're listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going I'm to start to think about this in an entirely different way. Well, in fact, reading the whole book, um, I think, Kate, it, it not only does it inform you uh, about listening, it makes you think about all the conversations you have, work conversations. You talk about uh, in long-term relationships that the common refrains are, you're not listening, let me finish, that's not what I said. And a driving ingredient about that might be that you lose curiosity about a person you've been with for a long time. Yeah, well, it's called the, it has a name and it's called the closeness communication bias. And that just is the closer you get to someone, the less likely you are to listen to them. And that's because you develop this idea of, oh, I know what you're going to say. You know, I know you so well, I already know what you're going to say. I use the analogy, it's like, you know, driving down a road several times, you know, you drive the same route over and over again, you just start to stop, you know, stop noticing the scenery or signposts. And, you know, there could be a gorilla dancing on the side of the highway and you just wouldn't notice because you just, you know, that's what you do all day. Mm. And, and, and it's the same thing when you, with your really close relationships is you just, you know, you just think you already know. And so you develop all these assumptions and, and stereotypes of the other person. And the thing that, that the trouble with that is that all of us are changing all the time. We're all evolving. You know, you're not the same person you were yesterday and you won't be the same person t- as tomorrow. 
and you know each of us you know has our our ideas our judgments our understanding of the world shaped by what happens to us and the conversations we have with other people during the day you and I'll be slightly altered because of the conversation we're having right now and if your loved one doesn't stay keep up with you or you know stay in touch so to speak by listening to you they they will lose their ability to relate to you because you will continually change and they will be assuming you're the same person you were when you met. And that's, you know, where you get these situations where couples feel like, you know, I don't know you anymore. Yeah. Or, you know, or, or feel like they've suddenly changed or when friends fall out with one another. And it's basically because they haven't been keeping up with one another. And it's Nobody's a little bit of laziness. There. Yeah, it sure is. But, you know, humans are like that. You know, we... Our brains, you know, try and do the least amount of work possible. I mean, it's just, you know, it's kind of been noted where we just kind of relax things. That's what's so great about when you go on a vacation, because, you know, when you go to someplace totally new, you notice how your senses are so much sharper because, you know, nothing is routine. You have to figure out where you're going to go eat. You're going to have to, you know, figure out this this route back to the hotel and everything is just a little bit brighter and you, your senses are just a little bit sharper because everything's new. But back home, when you're going to the same grocery store and you're, you know, likely been to this restaurant several times and, you know, it's the same friends and, you know, it just, it becomes so routine that your senses get just a little bit dulled. And that's what happens in conversations with people you're really close with. So talking about being on vacation, one of the things you talk about is the role of journaling uh, Mm -hmm. and what impact that might have on listening. Well, you know, I really, uh, that was brought home to me by Tony Dore, um, the author of um, um, All All the Light We Cannot See. And he was talking about, he's journaled since he was um, 16 years old. And um, he said that it's, you know, sort of, it is like listening in that, you know, it makes you notice and, and really think about what you've heard and put it down on paper and to really kind of, um, roll those things over in your mind. He called it, uh, he, he said it was almost like a prayer. You know what it made me think about? So I, I journal regularly um, over a period of years, but not every day. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that it made me think about when I read that about journaling is if you're a journaler, you tend to develop an ability to be accurately self-reflective, or you're more likely to be accurately self-reflective. And that, to me, is the same thing, for instance, they talk about people getting from reading fiction, right? That you Mm -hmm. develop a kind of an empathy. You develop an empathy for your own frailties, and or you develop an empathy for characters in a a novel— so that made a lot of sense to me. Is it that quality that makes journaling add to your listening skills? Well, I would think part of it is, you know, you're you're listening better because you want to have material to write in your journal later. You know, so you, <laughs> I hadn't so, thought so you, about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's that. But also, you know, having a good degree of self-awareness is, you know, real helpful when listening because then you know the kinds of things that lead you to... Um, misinterpret things, the things that going on inside you that may color your the way you listen to things or if you shut things out. So, you know, I think 
that degree of self-reflection that can be brought about by journaling is helpful. But it's also, you know, it's interesting when you were bringing about reading, bringing up about reading and how that can make people, you know, more self-reflected that, you know, I found in my research that, you know, reading has a lot of similarities to listening. And in fact, when you read um, a direct quote versus, you know, indirect um, speech when you're when you're reading something, it actually activates different parts of your brain. So, for example, if you read someone saying, you know, a character in the book saying, you know, I love you so much to another character, the the actual auditory centers of your brain are activated. Whereas if you read something that said, he said he was in love with her, it doesn't activate as much mm. or at all. So, you know, it's really interesting how, and, and also, you know, there's so many people that say they hear the distinct voice of a particular writer that they like so much, or they hear the characters in the book. And in fact, a lot of, you know, the great writers talk about how their characters speak to them and tell them where to go in the story. I, I have this quote by Ray Bradbury in, in the book about how his morning writing ritual is to lay in bed and listen to the characters in his head. And when they reach a certain pitch, he jumps out of bed and goes and captures it, captures it on paper. Don't you so, love that? Yeah, I do love that. But it just it just shows because I've also heard about, you know, when people read a book and actually somebody said that to me recently came up to me after um, a discussion at a bookstore said, said, you know, when I read your book, I felt like you heard me. Mm. And I mean, that was just the most wonderful thing where, you know, where you're you're actually someone's reading something and they're, they're hearing you, but they're also feeling like you heard a thought within them. So it's it's really sort of a lovely idea, don't you think? I do. I do. And it, I think that, you know, part of what um, I hear people have a tough time with is they don't they don't know what to say. They don't know how to start a conversation. And you have a great section of the book where you talk about the difference between asking questions that are meant to be conversational as opposed to those that are a version of an interrogation. <laughs> Let's use some real practical examples for how people who are struggling to have a conversation, what they might ask um, and what they should be asking. Well, I think the first thing is to just sort of give people a warning about something that they're probably already doing that is not helping them. And that is, you know, what you just said is the interrogation. You know, most of the time when you go to a party or you're at a social setting or some, you know, networking event or something like that, people will ask you, so what do you do for a living? What part of town do you live in? What school did you go to? Do you have kids? Are you married? <laughs> now, all of those questions are really interrogation. You're not trying to get to know the other person. You're trying to rank them in the social hierarchy. Mm. And it will make the other person reflexively defensive. And so they will revert into their, you know, standard speech, you know, self-promoting speech, you know, so their resume recitation or um, their elevator pitch. And that's you know, going to be a soul-sucking conversation. I mean, it's going to be boring. And you're, you know, so you're actually creating a circumstance where you're not really going to want to listen to that. <laughs> and so... You know, really, the better questions are the ones that really help you get to know the other person. You know, what are their simple pleasures? What keeps them up at night? You know, what what are they passionate about? 
What are they worried about? Those kinds of things. And, you know, and, and intimacy is earned. So, you know, you can't just like say, well, you know, tell me what keeps you up at night. <laughs> you yeah. know, that would be kind of a turnoff. But, you know, any question that just every question leads to another question. I mean, the thing to keep in mind is, you know, one of the most valuable things I've learned as a journalist is everyone is interesting mm. if you ask the right questions. And you have to let it come about organically. Now, I mean, if you're at a party, a great question to ask people is, how do you know the host? You all have that in common. You both know the host. You're both there for some, you know, you somehow got there. So what's the story behind that? There's a story there. And that will generally lead to another question, another story. Or if somebody's, you know, wearing a piece of jewelry that you find interesting, you know, there's generally a story behind that pin or those earrings or that necklace. You know, yet my husband gave it to me or my great, great aunt gave it to me. Well, I mean, you know, that gives you a lot of information right there. You learn about the great, great aunt. But, you know, that's the thing, though, is that, you know, everyone is interesting. I mean, it's just you just haven't found out yet. Exactly. And so, you know, when I get to the end of the interview, if I um, if I feel like, you know, I didn't get anything interesting from that person, it's that it was on me. Mm. You know, I didn't ask the right question. I didn't I didn't get there. Now, some people can be withholding and that can happen, too. But just so, you know, uh, as part of that curiosity piece to just know and I can assure you <laughs> that everyone is interesting. Everyone's got a story. Everyone's a big deal in Absolutely. their own way. And so, you know, to just know that and you in a conversation are like the detective, you know, finding out what that is and, you know, and also, you know, showing, sharing with the other person something about you. I mean, it's, it's conversation is a two-way street. So it's sort of this reciprocal dance you're having with the other person of, you know, just listening and latching onto something they said and having a back and forth. And, you know, every conversation can be this way where you lose yourself and you're not worried about how you're presenting or, you know, whether or not you're advancing your agenda. You're just so lost in the conversation. And, you know, I, I hope that's happened to everyone. I mean, I certainly think it probably has at one point or another in their life. And there's no reason every conversation can't be that way. So do you think, Kate, that people who are, who do feel lonely or left out are to a large degree responsible for their own loneliness because they don't know how to engage in a conversation? You know, I don't want to pin blame on anyone, but I do think the inability to listen leads to a lot of loneliness mm. and a lot of hollowness um, in people. And they don't know why, because they think they're doing the right things, because that's what our culture has taught us to do. You know, from the time we're little kids and our schooling and just, you know, you're taught to lead the conversation, not follow it. Yeah. And as a result, everything's going out and nothing's coming in. You know, let, let's rephrase that because I think it's an important point. If you think about almost half the people that were part of that 2018 study said that they were lonely, rather than talk about it, you know, saying that they're responsible, I think the, I think the important point that you're making is that one of the paths 
to feeling less lonely is by learning to be a good listener. It absolutely is. I mean, it's, it's you know, how you let people in is by listening. And I think people have just kind of been sold a bill of goods of thinking the way I can connect with them is by being interesting to that person, when mm. really what they should be doing is being interested in them. And, and, and that's how you connect. Yeah. It, it's such an interesting notion. But I'd be curious if interviewing lonely people, if they would, what they would say they thought was responsible for that loneliness. Well, you know, something to think about is if you think about something like Alcoholics Anonymous, um, what they are teaching people is, uh, and I was in fact talking to a facilitator um, at one of the book events recently, they are teaching them how to listen. Mm. You know, they have gotten cut off and turned to drink to kind of fill up that void when it's really, they have, they don't know how to listen. They don't know how to let people in and connect and have that sense of support and feeling understood and understanding other people. And so all of AA is sitting around in a circle and learning how to listen and reflect back on what the other person, people are saying and providing a venue for other people to feel heard. Mm. So, I mean, so when you talk about what would lonely people say, I think, you know, it, particularly in talking to this woman and also an, an, uh, it was actually another podcaster brought this up as well to me um, who had been in rehab and said that that was the most valuable skill that she learned to get herself out of it is how to listen. Yeah. It, 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 the other, the parallel to this is uh, uh, a friend of mine, you know, back about 30 or 40 years ago, who was in AA said that one of the things he, when he became a sponsor, would learned is that you ask someone, are they uh, hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, halt, and that th when they wanted to get a drink, they would think about those four qualities and think about what they could do to mitigate being hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is similar to, um, it, you know, it's a parallel to what you're talking about. It, the, the, other, the other element, when I think of women talking to their friends, there were two things in the book um, that enhanced uh, the thinking about just girlfriends or guy friends talking to each other. One is uh, you brought up Robin Dunbar, about in the context of how many relationships you really can have. Share with us what Robin Dunbar's uh, research uh, taught, taught us. Well, Dr. Dunbar is known for Dunbar's number, and that's the number of people that you can reasonably maintain in a social network. And he pegs that at 150 people, but he's quick to add, and these are the number of people that you can comfortably join for a drink if you were to run into them at a bar, you know, have a beer with them or, you know, whatever. Um, but he was quick to add, Dr. Dunbar was quick to add that within those 150 people, there are hierarchical layers of friendship. And so on the top tier, which is, you know, defined by how close you really are to them. And on the top tier, 
would be, you know, like your best friend or spouse, you know, only could accommodate one or two people. And these are people that you are in touch with daily and, you know, doing that daily listening, keeping up with. And on the next layer is only can accommodate four people. And those would be your very closest friends. And then out from there, it contains more people, but you're more distant and listen to them less often. So you're not as close. So it just, and then, you know, by the time the people that um, you only listen to very occasionally, they sort of fall more into the realm of acquaintance. Mm. You know, you may be friendly with them, but they're not really friends in the way Dr. Dunbar would uh, define a friend. So one of, and the, the other piece about a lot of conversations with um, people might fall into the realm of what would be called gossip. Yes. And I learned from Deborah Tannen when I interviewed her a couple of years ago uh, that the original term, the, orig- the origin of gossip, which was from the Old English, was actually about people that you were close to or familiar with. It didn't take on the kind of the negative connotation that is often um, attributed to gossip till like the 16th or 17th uh, century. So is, is talk and listening that involves gossip good or bad? Oh, I say good. Gossip has gotten a bad rap. And I'm defining gossip of two people talk. And this is how like researchers, gossip researchers, and there are more of those than you can possibly imagine. <laughs> that was a real shock to me. But uh, but I'm defining gossip in the way they do in the scientific li- literature. And that is two people talking about someone else that is absent. And, um, and it does provide a social function. It is, you know, how we process human behavior. It is how we learn about, you know, social ethics and morality. We learn what we can get away with, who, who are likely allies, who are people that you might want to stay away from. We learn, you know, how to behave. Mm. And so, and, you know, and though people think of gossip as mostly malicious, only three to 4% of it is, you know, truly mean-spirited. And the rest of it is just trying to understand someone else's behavior or talking about, you know, some trouble you're having with another person and trying to process it or learning, you know, who's fallen out with whom and, you know, what's happening within the network. Because if you think of, you know, human interactions, they're so complicated. You know, it just, you know, any interaction is such an accumulation of different things that happen at just one moment that can, you know, spiral, spiral widely out of control or be, you know, totally a neutral interaction, just depending on all these other factors. And because it's so complicated, that's why we're so interested in hearing these stories so we can figure it out. I mean, that's why we lean in instinctively when there's gossip. We lower our voices. You know, we put our heads together and um, and we do that. And the reason why we all do that, and by the way, men do it as much as women and little kids, you know, by age five are very good at gossip. And the reason why we all do it is because it's valuable. Well, I'm glad you shared that. And Deborah Tannen said pretty much the same thing. I, I equate it with the same uh, a bit with why we read. We want to see 
what people are thinking, what works, what doesn't work. And I think as long, you know, the idea of what you said, it it can't be mean-spirited. You can't be betraying what you know is a confidence. That would fall outside of it. But otherwise, it it is an interesting way to engage. Well, and also, if people are really mean-spirited when they're gossiping, it really tells you a lot about that person. Yeah. You know? So, but I love your analogy. I didn't think about it that way about um, reading, because reading actually is gossip. That is a really interesting <laughs> notion. But it is, because you're learning about what other people have done, and so you're re. I love that. I'm going to use that. Okay, That's wonderful. You go, you go right ahead. I wish ahead. I'd put that in the book. That's <laughs> so good. Well, the next book, Kate. Okay. So speaking of this book, what got you interested in the topic of listening? You know, I listen for a living as a journalist. So, you know, I've always been interested in listening. But, you know, I guess I just noticed what we've all noticed is just, you know, this sort of hyper-conversational competitiveness this these days. Mm. And, you know, and also in politics where people refuse to listen to anyone that doesn't, you know, share their opinion. And, of course, you know, there there is the devices where, you know, you can go out to a dinner and everyone's looking at their phone and you're just thinking, why am I here? You know, mm-hmm. why am I here? And I just, I I heard so much, you know, most of my stories for the Times, I my North Star in, in writing stories is for it to be useful. You know, how is this helpful? And I, usually my, my jumping off point is because I've just heard a lot of people talking about something that really bothered them or that they were really curious about and they couldn't understand it. And I just heard a lot of people um, saying how much this bothered them, mm. that they, they didn't feel listened to, or they felt like they weren't understanding why someone was doing something. And I guess, you know, I, you know one other thing, though, that was happening with increasing frequency when I was interviewing people for stories, they almost seemed taken aback that I was actually listening to them. Mm. And as a result, they would often, I mean, it really with shocking regularity, tell me these very intimate details and concerns yeah. that had nothing to do with the story I was writing. And at the end of the conversation, they would say, oh, thank you so much for listening. And yeah. with the same breath, they would also say, I'm so sorry, as if they'd done something wrong and they had burdened me. And it just made me think, what is going on that all these very accomplished people with these vast network of friends that I was interviewing, I mean, these were very accomplished people. They didn't have anyone else to tell. Mm. And at the same time, they felt like they'd done something bad or wrong. By... by revealing too much about themselves? More that that they had, you know, taken too much from me, that that was Mm. just too much to have to, you know, for me to have to listen. Like, you know, somehow it was just this burden to make someone listen when really that's what makes a life. You know, all those, those things that you listen and to hear, you know, what's going on with other people and having that connection. You know, many of these people I still am in touch with that, you know, I, it, it's what makes us who we are Mm. and to listen poorly or, you know, half-heartedly or not at all. I mean, it just limits who you can be. Yeah. I think, I think that idea of 
it limiting who you can be is really powerful, Kate. And I think, you know, what I hope our listeners um, will take away from this, and I want to encourage uh, our listeners to—we've just discussed the tip of the iceberg of the book, but when you read all of the book, what I took away from it is— an understanding of just how powerful all of us could be enhanced. That's probably grammatically. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that again. Th- that when I read the whole book, the, the reminder to me, the impression to me, the information that you take away is by becoming a good listener— you actually are giving yourself a gift of a fuller, more engaged, connected life. That's a big thing. You know, that seems like it would take more than just learning how to listen. And I think what I learned reading the book and what I hope all the readers will take away from it is is just that, that it's it's almost that simple about a way that you can become more engaged, less lonely, just by becoming a good listener. And that's exactly it. And and it is it is so simple. I mean, you have to work at it to be a better listener, but it's, it's as simple as wanting to be a better listener and working at it, because mm. it will it will transform not only your conversations, it'll transform your life. Well, that that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good benefit from reading a book called "You're Not Listening: What You're Missing and Why It Matters." Uh, Kate Murphy, thank you so much for writing the book and for taking the time um, to talk with us on Just the Right Book. Oh, it was lovely. It was a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Kate. Thanks so much. Thank you, Kate. Yes. So have you been surprised by the reaction to the book? Um, yes and no. I mean, you know, having done all the research and I just, I, I think what I didn't expect is just how immediate, you know, I had somebody come up to me and say that you know, he hadn't been able to find a job for two years and he read my book and got a job. And, and people telling me about, you know, relationships that have been improved or, you know, they're, they really hadn't connected with their child for, you know, several years. And now they felt like, you know, they were right there with them. So I'm just, I, I'm so grateful for you for having me on the podcast because I just, you know, this is like you, I don't really think of the book as being, you know, me so much as just all this information that is so, I mean, I, I think is very helpful. And so the opportunity to be able to reach more people and get in the books in more people's hands and, you know, hopefully make them happier people is is wonderful to me. So I really appreciate you um, helping me do that. Well, I, I loved the book. Uh, and um, as somebody who um, tries to always work at listening, I, I learned a ton. Me too. My gosh, me too. I listen for a living and I, you know, I, I learned so much. Well, thanks again, Kate. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was lovely. I just love what you said about reading (laughs) and that, that really, I'm, 
I'm going to be thinking about that. That's lovely. Thank you for sharing that. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.